Hello, everyone. Hi. How you doing? Good. I was not talking to you. Jared Adelman is doing well. I'm Madison Dix. I'm okay. Um, and you don't care how we are. You're here for science. <laughs> because this is Science and Podcast, presented by Science and Pictures Magazine and produced by us, truly. If you haven't been here before, welcome. We're going to take the headache out of a recently published piece of scientific literature. We're going to make some jokes about it as well. Um, go on a few rabbit holes. And but, also probably should just get out of the way now because I can't stop listening to it. Um, there is food being made in the background, so uh, enjoy you, the free ASMR because uh, we don't have a recording studio. Yeah, if you hear sizzling, that's not the hot science. That's my friend and roommate cooking dumplings. Could also be the hot science. If you want to pay for us to have a studio, please get in touch. So, hi, I'm Madison. I brought the article this week. And wouldn't you know it... It's from the Galapagos. Oh my gosh. Who yeah. would have thunk it? Yeah, it's my new personality. So if, you, <laughs> if you are playing the new drinking game where you drink every time that I mention the Galapagos, just don't listen to this episode unless you have a death wish. Yeah, you will get alcohol poisoning. You will. Bare minimum. Yeah, or just like play it with something like water. Hydrate. You can also drink too much water, so don't do that. But... Yeah, you might. Yeah. Let us know. So the title of this paper this week is Eat and Be Eaten. Ooh. Trophic Interactions of the Introduced Frog, Synax Kinke Fasciatus, in Anthropogenic Environments in Galapagos. Gotta commend the pronunciation of that. Thank you, I wrote it out, see? Very cool. So we're going to be talking about the effects of a probably invasive species on the habitat it's colonized. That is correct. This article was published by M. Mar Moretta Oridiales of Escuela Superior Politecnica de Litoral in Guayaquil, Ecuador, and also Texas State University. Rafael Ernst of the Museum of Zoology in Dresden, Germany. Jose Ponton Ceballos of Escuela Superior Politecnica de Litoral, once again, and also the Darwin Research Center. Rafael Bermudez. I think I mispronounced that. Um, also from Escuela Superior Politecnica de Literal, also the Charles Darwin Research Center, and also the International Atomic Energy Agency Environment Laboratories in Monaco. I would assume that's maybe where they got their funding from? I mean, maybe? Monaco's rich, so. Yeah, so probably. Thanks, Monaco. I know they race cars there. And Heinke Jaeger of the Charles Darwin Research Center. Very nice. In Galapagos. Yeah. You expected him to be from Germany, didn't you? No. <laughs> He's from Galapagos. <laughs> I'm probably offending so many people from so many places. But I'm doing my best, everyone. I pronounced the name of the frog right, okay? That's all. I I've also heard it said uh, by many uh, a science person that if you just say a scientific name with enough confidence, that's probably the right way to say it. Okay. I mean, that's definitely how I operate, <laughs> as you know. I never look up the pronunciation. But of course, before we tell you about this frog, about the Galapagos, and break down all the science, we're going to take a left turn to the fun fact corner, where we talk about things that are fun that have nothing to do with what we're talking about this week. So Jared, do you have a fun fact? I do have a fun fact. Uh, do you know which mammal uh, is owner of the fastest growing bone? Slash, ns. Which mammal owns the fastest growing bone, parentheses? And what is that bone? Fastest growing bone. There are so many jokes to be made here. I'm going to guess that it is my friend Amblerhynchus Christophilus. Huh? No, that's not a mammal. Damn it. <laughs> well, okay, that's um, that's a marine iguana. Oh. <laughs> and they're able to literally shrink and grow their skeleton. 
Well, that's rad. I didn't think that actually. Yeah, it's really that. cool. But yeah, no, I'm stoked. Tell me. Uh, the uh, deer family. Oh, deer. What bone? Antlers. Oh. Uh... So antlers are able to grow so incredibly fucking fast because they grow under a weird mesh of skin and completely enervated uh, blood and nutrient flow uh, called velvet. Exactly. Yeah. So when a deer's horn is growing, it'll be covered in this velvet. And then what's really gross is when the velvet gets all itchy and they have to scratch it off on trees. It's like literally um, skin. Uh-huh. <laughs> But yeah, that is uh, that's how they're able to grow their antler so fast. And I did not realize that antler was bone. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I thought. I think it's less like sturdy bone than what you'd see in the skeleton, just yeah. because they have to remake them every year. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, shout out to my mom. We used to go out when the snow melted and collect like antlers and deer skulls and stuff, and then bleach them. That's rad. It was really cool. That's rad. Love you, Cheryl. That's my mom. Was that your fun fact? No, my fun fact this week. Is from a book that I just stopped reading because I got kind of annoyed with it, but it does have some nuggets in there. It's called The Evolution of Desire. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the author, but it's about like evolutionary psychology, basis for human reproductive patterns, etc. And there's a lot of interesting studies in there, one of which was looking at the patrons at a bar and it was trying to prove or disprove the beer goggles effect. Do you know of this effect? Well, yeah. I mean, it's when you drink and then everyone is more attractive to you. Exactly. So people call that beer goggles. Right. The more you drink, the more attractive the people who you're attracted to look. So in this bar, they asked all of the people at the bar to rate um, people that they had planted at the bar who were going to stay all night mm. um, on a scale of one to ten for how hot they were. And then they asked them in the middle of the evening and then right before last call. And they also asked them to tell them, and they recorded how many drinks each person that they were surveying had had. So what would you expect the results to be? So I've always had a little sneaky suspicion that your goggles were maybe just like someone's inhibitions being a little bit lower and maybe they would just talk to someone that they wouldn't usually talk to and they're post drunkily embarrassed about that Hmm. um so i would have to guess that the beer does not actually enhance the attractive you're correct so the amount of alcohol that they had had no effect on how attractive they found the other people Uh uh-huh it was there was no change until you got to five minutes before last call and then immediately everyone bumped up the attractiveness by like a lot why because, um, you know, they were in the bar for a certain reason. And last oh. call means the opportunity is about to go down. Oh. So once once the people in the bar were their only options for a um, take home, we will say, they suddenly looked much better to them. That is a fun fact, indeed. Yeah. So that's my fun fact. And now, where are we going next, Jared? We're going to go to the jargon corner. That's right. Jargon is scientific words that make no sense to the other people. And so we tell it, take them out and we explain them to you. So first up in the jargon corner, what does the word endemic mean? Endemic uh, refers to a species that would only be found uh, in a small sort of isolated geographical location. Isolated, not necessarily being geographically, but maybe by behavior or by something else. But yeah. Exactly. Um, It's a species that's only found in one very specific place and nowhere else. Mm -hmm. And usually that occurs because the place is isolated, like an island or a valley in a mountain range. But sometimes there's other reasons, too. All sorts of reasons. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yes, if it's endemic, it's found nowhere else on Earth except for that specific place. Oh, I didn't think I was going to be able to think of an example, but I could. Sea dragons yeah. are endemic to, like, the coast of Australia, whereas yes. that has more to do with the temperature than ge being ge geographically isolated. Yeah, it's the southern coast of Australia is the mm -hmm. only place you can find them. All right, what is a native species? Is this a trick question? No. Okay. Um, a native species is uh, somewhere that has been uh, evolving in an area long enough to be considered native. Very good. I just, no, I can't answer it like that because I used the word in the definition. I'm going to, though, because you're about to explain Yeah, I'm going to give another <laughs> definition, so it's okay. All right. So a native species arrived by natural means, a.k.a. humans did not bring it there, but it might also be found in other places. Mm. So... And all endemic species are native. Not all native species are endemic. Yeah, like we have uh, robins uh, in the U.S., which are actually the same species that can sometimes be found in uh, Mexico and South America, which yeah. makes it a little weird that they're called the American robin up here when you find them so many other places. Well, I mean, Mexico is part of North America. South America is part of South America. It's all America. Yeah, so that's a good example of a native species that's not endemic. The robin. They're everywhere. Mm -hmm. Okay. What is an introduced species? Um, an introduced species is exactly that. It was something that was uh, introduced uh, either on a person directly or in some sort of human transport thing uh, to bring it to an area that it would not be historically. So you're exactly right. Introduced species are species that are brought to a place by non-natural means. What are non-natural means? Humans and the human phenotype. Yeah. Which is the extended ours, human phenotype. Yes. Mm -hmm. Our behavior. Like... Oh my god, the Panama Carbon. Canal is an extension of our phenotype. <laughs> it is. That's wild to think yeah. about. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, so the things that we do, like literally carving through in a continental divide and connecting the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. What a great idea. Could not have been a worse idea. Yeah. <laughs> my god. Such a bad idea. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, they're brought, they're species that are brought by people or people's shit to a place that they don't otherwise occur. Sometimes it's on purpose, sometimes it's on accident. Like, one of the most common ways is in ballast water, um, which is the water that boats take into their hull and then let out to just sort of equalize how high they are in the water. But when they're sucking up water, they're also sucking up species. And that's why we have so many invasive species in the Great Lakes. Thank you, Erie Canal. Mm -hmm. I will also say, though, that there is also a scenario that exists in which a species arrives and doesn't actually cause ecological harm. Like, it mm -hmm. just sort of, like, settles in, and you would call that adventive. Adventive? Yes. Oh, okay. It's like a species that's there but has not been there long enough to be naturalized, but it's non-invasive either. So okay. it's adventive. Okay, yeah. So the, the caveat with introduced species is they're not always causing problems. Um, the next piece of jargon describes an introduced species that is causing problems. Which what is, is that word? That would be invasive. Yes, exactly. Invasive is an introduced species that's become a serious threat to the native ecosystem through either competition, predation, or disease. Mm -hmm. This is one that's kind of fun because it's sort of reached a new definition as time went on. Like, mm -hmm. the old, like, strictly ecological definition of invasive used to be just... It's a stepwise process. Uh, the species gets to a place, it becomes established, and then when it becomes invasive is when it starts expanding that range. Mm. Uh, but of course, in modern standards, there's just so many goddamn invasive species that we really do have to differentiate which uh, introduced ones are causing trouble and which ones aren't. Yes. Another word for invasive that you might see in a lot of guidebooks is introduced pest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as you might expect, they are pesky. 
There are a problem. Some examples of invasive species you might have heard of. Honeybees in <laughs> North America. Are they really causing problems? Mm -hmm. They spread disease to uh, native bees. They oh. outcompete native bees. And they are actively being helped at the expense of native bees. Damn. Mm -hmm. So that's one you probably hadn't heard of. But now you know. If you want to save bees by being a beekeeper... Don't. don't. <laughs> I like that we reached that point at exactly the yeah. same time. <laughs> don't. Um, what should you do instead, Jared? Plant native flowers, specifically ones uh, that have been proven to be preferred by those native species. Like milkweed. Yeah. If you're up here in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be a beekeeper for a long time because I was like, help the bees. But no. So instead, I want to be a bat keeper. Love that. Yeah. That's fantastic. So if you want to help pollinators, just build a bat house, but do it right. Because mm -hmm. if you build it wrong, they can get sick. Oh, also, uh, the caveat is that if you're a listener in, like, Europe to Eastern Europe, Apis mellifera would be a native species. Because oh, yeah. it's the European honeybee. If so. you're in Europe, then be a beekeeper. Yeah. Please. <laughs> um, but if you're here in America with us... Maybe, you know... Just plant native species and build a bat house. Yeah, come back a little bit. At me for instructions. So anyway, mm -hmm. there's a lot. And one of the best things that you can do... Like, one of the first steps to getting involved, if you want to, like, connect with nature and help out, is there's always invasive species removal projects near you. Anyway, <laughs> what I wanted to talk about next is the problem of invasive species in the Galapagos. Since you mentioned, you know, cleaning off your clothes and your shoes, especially hiking boots, before you go to a new place that you're mm -hmm. visiting, that is something that is strictly required by the Galapagos Conservancy. I would assume to prevent the spread of Gitrid? To prevent the spread of invasive species, seeds of all sorts. I forgot that there are no frogs native to uh, yeah, the Galapagos, no. so why would kitchard be a problem? Yeah, anyway. kitchard fungus. <laughs> but it's a problem other places. Yes. Things like kitchard fungus that come from one place and then fuck up things in another place. Yes. Um, so in the Galapagos airport, which is the first ecological airport in the world, you have to like scan your shoes, your bags, everything, and they have scanners that check for organic material. And if wow. you even bring like a snack, they're like, mm mm. I mean, good for them. It's amazing. It's an example of the really strict measures they have to control what? Invasive species introduction. Exactly! And uh, in Galapagos, as in every other place, invasive species can cause problems for the ecology. But particularly, people are concerned about it in the Galapagos because the Galapagos is one of the last places that humans discovered and started settling. It literally wasn't discovered until 1535 and wasn't settled until the 1800s. Not even like any indigenous people? No indigenous people in the Galapagos. Wow. Yeah, only two indigenous mammals in the Galapagos. People are not one of them. Double wow. Yeah. What are the two mammals? The two mammals are the Galapagos rice rat and I can't remember the name of the bat, but it's a bat. The Galapagos? I need to look up the picture of the Galapagos rice it's rat. It's really cute and they're endangered now because of the black rat. Rat is oh. Yeah, I know. Damn. Because we bring those motherfuckers everywhere. They're real smart, though. But they're bad for islands. Yeah. Oh! <laughs> it's really fucking cute. Looking at the rice rat. It's so cute. I know, that. isn't it adorable? I love that. Like, I wish our, I wish they were the invasive ones that were everywhere. Right? Cute as hell. Be a cute, it, it would be a cuter problem. Yeah, it would be a much cuter problem. So, what was I just saying? Oh, yeah. Because humans literally had no idea these islands existed and didn't do anything to them until after the 1500s, that made it basically laboratory conditions for Darwin to observe evolution. Oh, shit. That's why they're such a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So, because when he got there, instead of seeing, you know, the way that humans manage their environment, which we have in every environment on Earth, both in places where we are native and we are not, instead of seeing that, 
you're looking at different islands that have incredibly different ecologies because people haven't brought things from place to place. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. It's amazing. And through the work of places like the Galapagos Conservation Trust, um, they've preserved it to the best of their ability. So there's still about, um, let's see, what is it? 40% of Galapagos species are endemic. <laughs> yeah. Biologists, it's their dream to go there and study it. Mm. One of the best examples is... Um, oh, actually, I actually have a past professor who's on the Galapagos right now doing research. Amazing. Is he... Is she, he... Dr. Jennifer Coop. Jennifer Coop. Shout out to Jennifer Coop. I hope you're having a good time out there. She studies bird parasites, so she's having a fantastic time. I bet. Mm -hmm. There is a study famously written up in The Beak of the Finch that follows the Grants research, which is a 40-year... Rosemary. Love that. Yes! Mm -hmm. Exactly! Have you read The Beak of the Finch? No, but uh, Dr. Jennifer Coop has sp spoken emphatically about the Grants. It, they're amazing. Mm -hmm. I love them. And it's such a good experiment. It's literally 40 years on this very isolated island within the Galapagos where they study the changes in the finch population. Not to mention how hard it is to get onto that island. It's, um, they can only do it during high tides, uh -huh. like king tides. Mm -hmm. And then no one can come and bring them shit or help them at all for six weeks. They're just fucking stranded. Another king tide. Yeah. And that's it. It's, and I, we got like so close to the island. That's awesome. It's awesome. Because if I didn't mention this, <laughs> I just went to the Galapagos. <laughs> Did you um, really? Yeah. So that's why I'm obsessed with this right now. So I could talk about the grants forever, but we need to keep this episode under an hour. <laughs> so moving on. Um... The three goals of the Galapagos Conservation Trust. Any what? guesses as to what they might be? Uh, research, conservation, education. I mean, they all sort of fit into those umbrellas, but nice. it's restoring habitats. Oh, I should have said that. Protecting species and driving sustainable solutions. Nice. Yes. So restoring habitats is that includes removing invasive species, restoring the habitats to what they were like when Darwin first saw them, and reintroducing locally extinct species. So Lonesome George is a very famous resident of uh, the Galapagos who died in 2012, and he was the last of his race of tortoises. But right now, through genetic profiling, they're actually breeding tortoises at one of the conservation centers that have pinta genes and breeding them back down to the pinta race. And then they oh, awesome. hope to one day reinstate them on Pinta Island. Reinstate the pinta race. Yes, exactly. So yes, restoring habitats. Number two, protecting species, and that has to do with conservation action, local education, which you said, climate change research, and setting long-term Well, what is goals. local education on the Galapagos where there's no people? There are people. Oh, shit. There's about 30,000 people. Who oh, live on the okay. Yeah. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Mm -hmm. Even so, people only live on 3% of land in the Galapagos. Goddamn. Yeah. Wow. It's a huge archipelago. The islands are big. It's not like the Caribbean. That's good to hear. Yeah. That it's, it's like an actually predicted place that's big. Yeah, it's big. Um, like our crossings between different islands would take like three hours on a boat with like six motors. So it, it's like a hundred miles between islands. Seems so small on a map. I know. Wow. I know. And it's also 600 miles from the mainland. It's very isolated. There's a reason people didn't know about it for a long time. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, protecting species and then driving sustainable solutions. So trying to protect the archipelago from plastic pollution, um, removing plastic waste and empowering people to make sustainable choices on the island, which I've never seen a place with less pollution. That must be nice to say. Invasive species started being a problem on the islands when the first people discovered them in 1535. 
The general consensus at that time was that the Galapagos Islands were not suitable for living and that the animals were ugly and useless. <laughs> Which is really rude. And even really Darwin himself, he called them um, dirty little imps. Fuck you, Charles. I know. I'll call so you by rude. your first name because I'm not going to give you the respect. Mm -hmm. The only animals that the people were interested in... Tortoises, because they ate them. Yes. Sorry. It's also what the island is named after. Galapagos is the local name for that type of tortoise. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so the giant tortoises, they thought they were ugly and stupid, but really great for pillaging for their meat, um, which was a problem for the tortoises, which, by the way, each island has its own distinct species. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, they estimate that... Before the Galapagos were discovered by people, there were probably about 250,000. And the first census they did for conservation in 1970, guess how many there were? I don't want to. 3,000. God damn it. Yeah. Because giant tortoises, like so many other of these beautiful large reptiles, like sea turtles, don't reach sexual maturity until they're in their 20s. Yeah. Yeah. But now, uh, after like about 50 years of hard work at the research center, they've got those populations almost doubled. So it's up to 5,000 something. All because of like a couple real stud tortoises too. Like yeah. I remember reading about Diego all the time that just mm -hmm. retired recently and was released back into the album that, that he was uh, collected from. Yep. And mm -hmm. he has like a Genghis Khan level of children. Yep. Um, because when they find one that actually is willing to reproduce with females, it's very exciting. Oh, a yeah. lot of them, like Alonso George, are just very shy and they don't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Poor George. So, in addition to pillaging the tortoises, sailors would leave hardy animals like goats and donkeys on the islands when they came to take the tortoises. And that was so that those animals would multiply. So the next time they visited, they could pick up more food in the form of goats and donkeys at a later date. Um, this was a huge problem. I am shocked. That just took the fucking wind out of me. Oh my I know. God, we're just gonna we're... drop off invasive hey, species and peace out. Why Bye. Why are you so fucking stupid? I know. They were like, these islands are stupid, these animals are stupid, we'll put our animals here instead. Like, who gave you the right? Jesus Christ. It makes me so mad. Um, so that wiped out several species, some of which we will never see, hmm. but we do have fossil records of them, especially from caves. Um, and goats especially wreak havoc because they can go everywhere, they can survive on nothing, and they eat everything. Oh yeah, they can climb a fucking vertical mountain. Um, goats have been largely eliminated now, but it took over 15 years to do that. A lot of people died. <laughs> um, can you guess what other animals might be a problem that humans bring everywhere? Mm, well, we already talked about the rats. Mm -hmm. um, have we brought any snakes to the Galapagos? No, there are native snakes. No, it's a controversial problem, but cats and dogs. Because there are consummate companions. Um, did we domesticate them? Did they domesticate us? Open question. It does need to be said, though, that when a cat is allowed to roam free outside, it fulfills the roles of an invasive species. A very problematic and excellent predator. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So cats are a big problem because they prey on the local birds. So many things. Yeah. Um, so many things. And dogs, of course, are a problem because they like to play and sometimes... Things don't. Yeah. So, yeah. like, for example, one of the most endangered species on the islands are the American flamingo. Ugh. Yeah. Um, and flamingos are really sensitive. They only lay one egg 
per year and usually they won't reproduce again for two to three years because it takes them that long to build up their energy reserves. Um, they were really excited a couple of years ago because there were seven baby flamingos, mm-hmm. which is the most they had had in a very long time. And then someone's dog got loose and killed five of them. Are you fucking kidding me? No. So that's an example of how like one dog can do a lot of damage. Oh, and God. the conservation and charity organizations on the Galapagos have already done a lot. Um, like, you know, programs where you can neuter your dog for free. Every single dog and cat on the islands is registered. You have to register all pets. Good. Um, and so they know exactly which dog did it, you know, but it's, it's still a problem because, you know, humans are flawed and we can't keep perfect control of our pets. No, we cannot. So what is the ultimate solution to that problem? Don't bring them there. Yeah. It might be making it illegal to have those pets on the Galapagos. It sounds to me, I mean, yeah, Yeah. they're causing so much more trouble than they're Mm -hmm. worth. I know. But I mean, like, it's sad. Okay. Anyway. Um, back to protecting the species and not crying about dogs and cats, <laughs> which I am wont to do. The Galapagos Conservation Society led the largest eradication of a mammal species from an island ever achieved in the world when they eradicated all 80,000 goats from Santiago Island. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Between 2001 and 2005. It was part of a project called Project Isabella, which was initiated in 1997. Um, after feral goats crossed an important natural barrier on the largest island, Island Isabella, and decimated one of the unique giant tortoise populations there. Um, they did so by trampling the vegetation, and the tortoises depend on that vegetation for food and water, and that species has since almost gone extinct. Um, at the start of the project, the goat population was an estimated 100,000 animals on Isabella alone. And um, after they began on Pinta Island for training ground, they then went to Santiago, um, started using helicopters, and then began on Isabella. They fully completed the project in 2006, and now there are no goats on those islands except for those that are strictly controlled in agricultural areas. Hell yeah. Yeah! So it's an example of how you can do a really effective invasive species reduction if you have funding. And one of the great things that Darwin did for the Galapagos is by making them so famous is people are pretty gung-ho to sponsor conservation projects there. Good. Yeah. So there's like, there's charity organizations from the UK, from Australia, from Monaco, from Germany, all funneling a lot of money into, you know, keeping these islands quote unquote pristine. So one invasive species, unlike the goats, that hasn't made any major waves or really been studied at all is a certain frog. The one that we're talking about today, mm-hmm. Synax kinkei fasciatus, aka the fowler snouted tree frog. Show me. So it's just your standard tree frog, if you want to describe it. Yeah, he looks like a Cuban tree frog, uh, if yeah. any tree frog people know what that one looks like. Um, yeah, it's a drab looking tree frog. Little, brown, squishy, kind of camo pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So there were no amphibians on the islands until the 1990s. Not even Sicilians? Uh, No. Interesting. Yeah. It was one of the most notable things that Darwin noticed, is that there were no amphibians, which the night times were pretty quiet. Hmm. I don't know if I would have believed Darwin when he said that, because, like, did did you really look Charles? I mean, it's well documented. There were no amphibians. Interesting. None. So why do you think there are no amphibians on this archipelago? Uh, 
marine amphibians existed about 300 million years ago, but uh, the most marine amphibian I can think of is the cane toad, and they can only tolerate brackish water. So it's it's hard for amphibians to travel across oceans. Yes, it is. So the word marine describes only salt water, not mm -hmm. fresh water. Um, as you probably know, if you've ever seen a pond, amphibians love fresh water, but they're very, very sensitive. They absorb everything through their skin, and they can't tolerate salt water. So the usual ways that species got to the Galapagos, which is like swimming, floating on some sort of debris, or being carried by birds, do not allow amphibians. Because if an amphibian is being carried by a bird, it's not going to do well. Probably not, yeah. And unlike plants, their seeds can't be dispersed by birds either. Like frog eggs are not going to travel. Those don't travel in the wind. They don't travel well. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> be However, um, as I was surprised to find out my first night in the Galapagos, I heard a bunch of frogs. I was like, what are those? <laughs> and the, our host was like, oh, they're the frogs. And I was like, there are no frogs here. He was like, there are obviously frogs here. <laughs> Which is actually how I found this article, because I was like, how are there frogs if there's not supposed to be any frogs? Uh, and I actually found them in person as well. All right. According to scientists at the Charles Darwin Research Station, growing human activity in the Galapagos Islands has led to importation of large amounts of material from continental Ecuador, mostly to feed tourists. And that is how the frogs got there, is in shipments of produce. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. So the first observations of these specific frogs was in 1998 at the height of an El Nino event. So that's important because El Ninos have a really big effect on islands like the Galapagos. It's when a warmer than normal current happens and scientists still don't know exactly what causes El Nino, but it's getting more frequent and more severe with climate change. And in a place whose climate is 100% dictated by ocean currents, it can have a really big effect. Seems like it. So the Galapagos is usually pretty arid in most places, but during this El Nino event, there was tons of rain, which means tons and tons of vernal pools. It's weird thinking of a small island as arid, I will just say, but continue. It's a big island. Still though. Severe flooding occurred throughout the coastal regions, and reports of unusually dense populations of frogs were common both on the mainland and boom, suddenly frogs are popping up in Galapagos. So scientists are pretty sure that it was the unusually wet conditions from the El Nino that allowed the frogs to multiply and actually take root on the islands. To Just become like a introduced. perfect storm. Yeah, exactly. Circumstances. Yes. And since then, the populations have persisted because of microhabitats created by humans. There's not a lot of, like, pools of water happening naturally on the Galapagos, but humans need fresh water for activities like agriculture, uh, creating irrigation systems, reservoirs of fresh water for human use, and decorative water features that appeal to tourists, like pools. So that would kind of imply that the populations of the frogs are going to be the most common around the human settlements and kind of say the opposite, that they probably wouldn't be common in the remote areas. That's exactly correct. So cool. humans only inhabit and use 3% of the land that they've built the Galapagos. And since the 1990s, these um, frogs have extended their range within the agricultural zones. Knew on, it. Yep, on ah. Santa Cruz and Isabella. So they're not in places that people are not. Uh, we kind of have a small parallel to this in the U.S. with the uh, almost invasion of the Asian giant hornet. 
Mm. Um, which have honestly probably been eradicated at this point. Is that the quote-unquote murder hornet? Yes. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, they probably wouldn't spread as fast as the European hornet did in the eastern U.S. anyway, because their habitat uh, preferences are a lot more strict, um, which would imply that they would pretty much be staying in that area anyway. Um, but anyway, if you're in Florida, you're not seeing fucking murder hornets. I... They're just hornets. Yeah. All right, so the frogs are here. In Galapagos. Mm-hmm. They're in the places where people live. What do you think? Are they going to cause major problems? Let's find out. Let's set the scene, shall we? This study took place in the lush highlands of Santa Cruz, the centermost island in Galapagos. The primary source of water in this area are mists called garua that drift across the treetops in the rainy season. Cool. It literally is like you're in a cloud forest. You just see like these clouds of mist. I like that. It's so cool. And that's the main source of water, not rain. So because of that, every tree is like seven different plants, at least, because epiphytes are everywhere. Oh! Also known as parasitic plants. So like orchids, bromeliads, mosses, lichens, fungi, they're everywhere. They colonize every available inch of every tree. Wait, why are, why are epiphytes parasitic? Um, that's just what another name for them is parasitic plants. I'm not sure if they're actually parasitic. That's interesting. Yeah. I have, to, I have to look more into that. They're hitching a ride to the uppermost branches where they can catch that mist, the garua, and then they actually share the water with the plants. So they're really not... Not parasitic not at all. Parasitic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so before introduced Cuban <clears throat> cedar trees were brought to Santa Cruz, the tallest trees on the island were the local Scalesia variety. Have you ever heard of Scalesia? No. Are there invasive plants in the Galapagos? Oh, yeah. Shit. But uh, blackberries <clears throat> are one of the most problematic, actually. God damn. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Blackberries are a big part of the reason why the vermilion flycatcher is going extinct. That's not good. Yeah. Anyway. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> so have you have I talked to you at all about Scalesia trees? Never once, I don't think. Okay. So there's different species on every island, um, like the tortoises. But what's crazy is when these trees arrived on the Galapagos, they were not trees. Oh, that's really fun. They were daisies. What? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. And daisies have now formed, and it's the only it's the only subtype of daisy that has turned into a tree, but there's like 13 different species of Scalacia trees on the Galapagos. That's so cool. Sometimes they're the tallest ones on the islands, growing up to about 50 feet in height. Um, other places, they're like, they look like lettuce that grows close to the ground. Mm-hmm. It's nuts. Um, below that delicate canopy is a mix of jungle-like undergrowth and farmland where settlers on the Galapagos grow bananas, coffee, citrus, and pumpkins, among other things. Hmm. Um, and Santa Cruz, oops, Santa Cruz holds the most productive farmland in the entire archipelago. So it's one of the tallest islands is why. So it gets a lot of that mist, that garuda. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Um, the first settlers arrived in the highlands of Santa Cruz between 1910 and 1938, which is really recent to have your first settlers. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Love Galapagos. Um, and they subsisted on agriculture and fishing. And over time, the human population grew and spread to pretty much all of the area where you can <laughs> grow anything on the Galapagos. And population growth combined with associated plant invasions has resulted in the degradation of approximately 86% of the highland ecosystems on Santa Cruz. Well, that's not ideal. I know. It's sad. So Santa Cruz is like the most fucked with island, basically. 
But even so, it still has so many native species and it's still so beautiful. And if you do visit the Galapagos, it's going to be the place that you spend most of your time, which is good because hmm. we don't want tourists spending all of their time on places right. where people are not. That's that the shit. whole point. Places it's not supposed to go. Exactly. So this study was conducted during the rainy season of 2017, encompassing one ranch, which was not actually a ranch. It's actually a farm where turtles come, but they call it oh, a ranch. Okay. <laughs> um, and six agricultural sites in the Santa Cruz Highlands. The core site is called Rancho El Manzanillo, which is actually a place that I went to. <laughs> it's a popular ecotourism destination because... They basically made all of these pools and stuff, artificial ponds, um, because they know that the piggies love to dip. <laughs> and the, if they build it, they will come. So mm -hmm. they built these little ponds, and then the tortoises started to visit, and eventually they got so much revenue from ecotourism that they got rid of their cows and stuff, and that's all they do now. Awesome. Yeah. Um, however, guess who else loves little ponds? Pigs. Oh, frogs. <laughs> <laughs> Biggie different. <laughs> frogs. Yes. Frogs. frogs. Um, so the water sources that they created for the tortoises also now provide ideal re reproductive habitats for Synax kinkei fasciatus. So it's a perfect place to do this study. Mm. So they actually went there and collected the frogs from the ponds. Why collect them? Because they wanted to understand their impact as a predator. So they captured both adult and subadult frogs from between 8 p.m. and 12 a.m. Mm -hmm. Why so late? Doesn't last for a lot of soon. Yeah, probably. Um, they did that for two weeks and acquired a total of 228 frogs, more than half of which were from the ranch, but um, about 72 of them, exactly 72 of them, were from the other agricultural sites. Do you know the meme that's like, this is the people you hear about in math problems? Yes. <laughs> One scientist collects 228 frogs from yep. an artificial vernal pool. Yep. That's him. Um, so How many is he left with? Guess what they did after they collected them? They probably euthanized them. That's correct. They euthanized them with liquid lidocaine, which seems like a good way to go. Yeah. It's a numbing agent. Um, and they had Oh, this... shit. Did they do nutrient analysis of the frogs? Yes, they did. That's rad. Oh, yes. that's cool. Yes. So cool. Um, and it was no more than five hours after capture, so they did not suffer for long. Why did they have to euthanize them? Because... you can't do this stuff ethically without killing the animal. Yeah, they wanted to see what was in their tum-tums. Mm -hmm. In their tummies, my friends. And you don't want to cut into a frog tummy if the frog is alive. Yeah, because that fact, hurts. please do not. Yeah, don't. So, samples were then transported to the Charles Darwin Research Station on Santa Cruz, where their digestive tracts were removed for examination. So, do you want to know what they found in I, the stomachs? I do, was I right? They found 11 macroinvertebrate orders, a.k.a. 11 different big families of bugs. Mm -hmm. um, but about 60% of the total contents were in just one order, which is Lepidoptera. Butterflies. Butterflies and moths. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, they're tree frogs. That makes sense. Yeah, I guess. You I don't. Butterflies and moths are up. Yeah, they are up. They're up, you so know. so are the frogs. The frogs are also up. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Logic. Yeah. I don't know. Or maybe they're hanging out by lights. Oh, true. You know lepidopterids love lights. That is true. Like a moth to a lamp. Yep. So, is this a problem? Well, yeah. Yeah. Well... So, the good news is, is that most of the prey items, like lepidopterids, are really common. That's what I was going to 
say. Yeah. yeah. However, there are some rare and endemic lepidopterids on the Galapagos, including the Galapagos blue butterfly. Were the samples degraded too much to be able to tell? That's the thing, is they're too degraded to find the exact species. I wonder if they were... Hopefully, eventually, they'll be able to, like, DNA fingerprint the species they're talking about so they can find them inside the frogs just by, like... They actually mentioned that in the, um... Discussion? The discussion section. They were like, hey, if anyone wants to do genetic studies... We were only able to do higher taxonomic identification, and we didn't have the genetic stuff, so if someone wants to come help, please. Honestly, it's impressive enough that they could figure out it's a butterfly or a moth, I but know. just pulling it out of stomach acid. Yeah, well, I mean, exoskeletons and wings do not deteriorate in stomach acid. This so, is true. Yeah. The scientists actually recommended, as I just said, that further research should be done to address the selection of native endemic and introduced item ratios using DNA metabarcoding approaches. Cool. I don't know what that exactly is. Uh, DNA, it's... Metabarcoding. So I think this is, like, this is something that DNAologists are working towards, to, Mm -hmm. like, just have a fucking smartphone-like device where you could grab a little tiny sample of any organism, put it in, and within 15 minutes you know what it is. Oh, that'd be great. I think that's what they're talking about here. Okay, Just, like, working towards that goal. Glad you knew, because I should have looked that up. I might not know, so maybe we should look it up after. <laughs> we have approximate knowledge of many things. <laughs> Additionally, increasing the occurrences of artificial ponds and rainwater reservoirs in the agricultural areas of Santa Cruz provide ideal habitats for reproduction and hydration, which are necessary components for these frogs to grow and multiply. So that does suggest that their populations are likely to continue to increase on this island, or at least remain stable. That's interesting, too, because that's exactly the problem of why uh, Cuban tree frogs, which eat other tree frogs, uh, they shouldn't in Florida right Mm now. Uh, They are thriving in human settlements because of all the artificial water. Mm. Mm-hmm. No, the water's not artificial. The basin's holding the water (laughs) I know what you mean. The artificial sources of water. Also, they didn't find any predators that were likely to keep the adult frogs in check. That makes a lot of sense, though. Yeah. what's going to do that? (laughs) Yeah, there's almost no, like, big predators on the Galapagos. Um, There's things like the Galapagos hawks and stuff, but they don't recognize amphibians as prey. Right, because why would they? Yeah, so... Um, However, they were able to do a more in-depth search to find out if there's anything eating them when they're babies. Oh. Yeah, because they're in the ponds anyway, so might as well dig around dip a little. Um, so in addition to collecting the frogs from the study sites, they also sat there and just watched the study sites, which I would love to do. That sounds really fun. Just sit on a tortoise farm. Be a frog watcher. Yeah. Um, so they observed these same habitats that they deemed suitable for frog larvae, aka tadpoles, to see if they could identify any predators. And during a five-day window of survey, they were pretty excited to find, um, Anisoptera larvae, which are a type of dragonfly larvae that's a badass, basically. Awesome. Yeah, so it's a type of dragonfly larva that's known to be an effective predator of tadpoles everywhere. However, (laughs) another thing that they noticed is they only found the dragonfly larva in places where they found no frog eggs or tadpoles or evidence of the frogs. So they're useless for this purpose. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, but does that mean that they are really affected and they ate them all? Did the frogs learn not to lay there? I have so many questions. Oh, that's interesting. But regardless, they didn't find them in the same place. So not an effective predator as far as we can 
reasonably assume. And you don't want to just, like, bring them to places they're not. No. No. That's how we got here in the first place. Right. <laughs> so, they did find a different species that they were like, maybe you will eat them, which is the endemic Galapagos diving beetle. I love diving beetles. Thermonectus bacillaris galapagensis. So they set up a separate study to study that mm. as well. They wanted to see if it, that predation could be counted on to curb the growing frog population, but they had to set up these experiments in a laboratory because they couldn't, like, actually be underwater in these pods. And, like, yeah, that's see. tough. Yeah. So, in order to, one, ensure that the tadpole exposure to the beetle predators was novel, a.k.a. that hadn't learned to avoid them, Two, minimize the ontogenetic and interpopulation differences in larval predation response. Don't know. You want to make um, sure that uh, every predator you, you introduce is going to have the same veracity towards your predator, uh, but, but the opposites. Which oh, make predator. sure they're hungry. Yeah. Okay, cool. Make, make sure, sure they're, they're always going to be hungry. Yeah, I looked up ontogenetic and interpopulation, and I could not figure out what this sentence meant. <laughs> ontogenetic is like the Everything. tracking of baby to not baby. Yeah. And then the other one is that one. Okay, so they chose to rear the tadpoles and the beetles in their laboratory rather than collecting adults from available ponds. So they collected parents, adults from the ponds, had them reproduce, and then they raised the spawn in the laboratory. The spawn. The spawn. Um, they raised them to the appropriate maturity for predation. Hence the, ont the ontogeny. Hungry age. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so in order to equalize their feeding motivation, they fed the beetle larvae with two tadpoles from their hatchery every four hours for 24 hours, and then deprived them from food for another 24 hours prior to experimentation. Just to make sure they were hungry. Yeah. So to test their predatory capacity, how hungry they was, they would introduce one hungry, food-deprived beetle larva into a plastic container with 20 tadpoles from the hatchery and watch what happened. As a control, they also observed the survival rates of 20 tadpoles in the same type of container with no beetle and also observed the survival rate of one beetle in the thing without any tadpoles, which I don't know why they had to do that one, but I don't know. They were just covering their bases. Okay. <laughs> So, treatments and control experiments were run at the same time as the actual experiment over the course of four days. Also, each beetle larvae and tadpole were only used once. Naturally. Unfortunately, the baby beetles just weren't that hungry hmm. for tadpole. What's interesting is, like, they had really encouraging results for the first exposure to the tadpoles. That's and the, the worst. Yeah. They're like, oh my god, they're gobbling them up. Oh my god. But then after their first exposure to the tadpoles, they didn't want to eat them anymore. Oh. So like maybe they taste bad or something. A lot of, um, not to bring up cane toads again, but I'm gonna, yeah. uh, cane toads are toxic at every stage of life, including the mm. egg. Uh, so uh, good luck getting anything to eat them. You know, maybe that's why they put the beetle without the tadpoles is to see if the tadpoles were toxic to the beetles. Oh. Yeah. Could be. That's it. I yeah. just figured that out. There you go. Um, so basically, yeah, after they'd had a taste of tadpole, they were like, not for me, thanks, and then like wouldn't eat them again. Mm. It, it continued to decrease over time. Damn. Yeah. So not a good candidate for the management of this species. So at the end of the study, <laughs> we're kind of left with the same question as the beginning, but a lot more information. Are these frogs going to become a problem for the Galapagos ecosystem? Well, they currently don't seem to be causing noticeable problems, but their habitat is expanding, 
and that means their numbers will likely multiply. We did not find any actual promising local predators, which means that multiplying of their populations might become an issue. So Jared, what would you say is the best candidate, best species to control these frogs in the future? The best species. Mm -hmm. If you can't introduce anything native and nothing on the island is any help, then it's mm -hmm. up to the people. Humans. Humans. Exactly. Yeah. Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens sapiens. We're pretty good at controlling invasive species. Also Almost as good as we are at introducing them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the Galapagos has a really good track record of eradicating invasive species. So if these frogs do become a problem and these scientists are keeping a very close eye on them, Humans are there to take care of it. And as the stewards of our planet with very big brains and very capable five-digit fingered hands, humans have been balancing ecosystems on Earth for thousands of years. And there's even evidence that suggests the distribution of species in the Amazon rainforest is a result of the gardening practices of indigenous peoples prior to colonization. That's really cool. So we're really good at that shit, at maintaining balance. Humans can be a big problem when they come into a place with no consideration and just, you know, mess everything up. But... For instance, I don't think there's a single invasive species that's been eradicated from the United States. Yeah, nope. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know. Americans are a problem. <laughs> yeah. um, humans can be a big problem, but we're much more aware of the problems we cause than, say, a tree frog. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Which means, unlike the tree frogs themselves, we are much better equipped to fix the problems that we and our associated species create. This is true. Yes. We have the awareness, so we should do something with it. Yeah, so I'm going to keep an eye on the frog studies uh, and see what the conservation organizations on Galapagos end up doing about it, because their track record is excellent, and if they need someone to come watch frogs, <laughs> I'm your girl! <laughs> I would love to come help. They have less introduced pests than any other tourist destination in the world. Um, they really take this stuff seriously. They do great work. And I think they're also a great resource to look to when we want to learn how to fix these sorts of problems in other places, like, for example, the United States. <laughs> Where, as you mentioned, we have not eradicated a single invasive species in our history. Personally, I like to combat invasive species by either eating them or crafting with them. <laughs> how about you, Jared? Uh, the eating and the crafting is definitely good. I mm -hmm. would love to eat a lionfish. I would also love to eat a zebra mussel. Uh, when you're traveling, do the old good old check, because I don't want to be bringing the redacted moth to other places. Yes, yeah. wash your camping gear, wash your hiking boots. Do um, a lot of education. Um, mm -hmm. I do a lot of outreach online, which is weird to say. Um, but yeah, yeah great. Uh, a lot of education, because it is... A lot of invasive insect species can look a lot like native ones. That's true. Uh, for instance, one of the most common ones you might see in Massachusetts, the brown marmorated stink bug, <laughs> looks very similar to a native genus called the rough stink bugs, and you have to really know what to look for. So maybe leave that um, one to the professionals. Yeah. But... I mean, I'm not a pro, I'm not going to ID them. But, yes. You know. Well, the semi-pros. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to know what you're doing. Um, you don't want to just be going out killing animals at random and assuming they're invasive, <laughs> obviously. But if you do have a hankering for destruction, 
Uh, if you choose to destroy the invasive species, that's a helpful way to be destructive. Hell yeah! There's yeah. um, there's a lot of uh, I, if you were to reach out to your city and uh, mm-hmm. I, you you can probably get involved in a lot of the invasive species cleanups that might be happening around your town. Yeah, one of the ones that I've done here in Massachusetts was organized through the aquarium. I'm not sure if they do it anymore, but um, is it the water chestnut thing? Yeah, exactly. It was really fun. We got in canoes for a full day. They provide lunch, and you just tear out all of these you know non-native plants. But you get to just paddle around with your friends all day in a canoe, and there's pizza. Sounds awesome. Yeah, it's a great way to meet people also who are also interested in helping the planet if you need more friends. So, <laughs> yeah, Google invasive species removal project near me, uh, meet some friends, and uh, tell us about it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, that's all, folks. I usually have a joke here. Shh. Um, Shh. <laughs>